The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Relationships we share with others can be complex, but what about those that they share? How complex is your network of friends and acquaintances, and what kind of web connects them without your knowledge? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and baseball, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. This evening's seminar is on the subject of the 1995 Brooklyn-based drama Smoke, directed by Wayne Wang, written by Paul Oster, and starring Harvey Keitel, William Hurt, Stockard Channing, and Forrest Whitaker. My guest is Simon Garrier, and you join us on a stoop in Park Slope. Hello, Simon. Hello, Jeremy. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am good. I am good. We've got a nice film to talk about today. <laughs> well, that's, uh, it's an interesting one, because this film was your suggestion. It was actually, when I, when I first uh, approached you about being on the podcast... Without any hesitation or thinking time, this was the film that you proposed. Yes, um, yes, it's a it's a film not a huge number of people know about. And when we had a sort of that first initial chat about unappreciated films or films that deserved a second chance, this was the one that immediately came to mind because. I really like it. I think there's there's some issues with it that we'll we'll talk about, but I really like it. And it seems to have passed a lot of people by, which is extraordinary given the caliber of people involved in it and what it is and stuff. The moment you tell people about it, they go, "Oh, that sounds interesting." Hmm. So, how had how did you first encounter Smoke? Uh I saw Smoke in February 1996 in a cinema in Madrid and I had gone out to visit my older brother who lived in Madrid at the time and I was a student and because I'd been doing a Spanish course I um, managed to convince my parents to pay for the flight so that I basically spent my reading week in Madrid just hanging around with my older brother really and um he took me to see this, the film in a little art house cinema in Madrid um, because it was one of the few things that we could see that was in English, I think. And I'd be, you know, I, I was getting by in Spanish, but I was finding it a bit hard. And so it was just a, an evening out, really. Um, I think he had already seen it. I think. Um but it was just what was on, you know. It was like one of those tiny little boutique cinemas that has one screen. So it was right. just it was just what was there, um, and I, I was so spellbound by it. It was such a um, revelation. And then in the airport bookshop, on the way home, they had books by Paul Oster, the the writer, and um, 
I sort of began a, a bit of a love affair with with him as a writer. And over the next four or five years, I, I basically worked my way through everything he'd written. Um, fiction, non-fiction, his translation of a uh, anthropological study in New Guinea. Um, and uh, yeah, and kind of immersed myself in, in this kind of uh, rather, rather uh, benign, but twisted kind of reality that he he kind of tells um and became a big fan i see and um have you ever been to brooklyn uh i've been to new york i i have a friend who lives in brooklyn actually but i've i've seen it from across the water but i, I was only in new york briefly ah uh. but it does there, there are overlaps you know i lived in london for 20 years until last year and there are certainly overlaps that you see in the kind of atmosphere and feel and the, you know, the general mix of people and the kind of daily problems and stuff. I, you know, I don't know how much that maps onto other cities and stuff, but I certainly feel like I, you know, can share something with the kind of sensibilities in, in the stories. Well, I, uh, I was aware of smoke. I think I remember it being covered on the film program when it came out. And in particular, I was aware that it had this second film that's kind of just sort of budded out of it, um, Blue in the Face, which I watched earlier today for, for background. And it was interesting to see the contrast between the more deliberately scripted, structured smoke and Blue in the Face, which is almost entirely improvised and has a, a one or two scripted scenes just to keep keep it as a, a thread one is more about the characters one is more about um brooklyn as a city uh, as a as a world as a kind of a a mood and atmosphere of its own yeah i think um i think they are really interesting my my memory of them having not seen them for a while but my memory before i rewatched them this week is that blue in the face is really self-indulgent and the, you know, the inferior of the two. A, a bit to my surprise, watching it again, it is very self-indulgent, but it's it's not nearly as irritating as I had remembered it. <laughs> um, I actually really enjoyed it. And my, and my wife, who was kind of coming in and, and out as I was watching it, um, she got quite caught up in it as well. Um, and, and the idea that it's... Because it, cause it, what, what's interesting is that is smoke is full of kind of little surprises and tangents and goes in places that you're not quite expecting. And Blue in the Face does that, but Blue in the Face does that because it's improvised, that, that the actors are kind of playing against the situations they've been given a bit. Um, most notably, there's a scene where... Um, Roseanne tells her husband she wants to go to Las Vegas and he just says yeah all right then let's go which was not what the scenario was that that Paul Oster gave to them Um, and you can see the actors in the room laughing because he's just gone yeah yeah fine let's do it and off they go (laughs) and um and that kind of stuff should be really irritating but actually comes across really well and it, it, yeah i just found it maybe it's just because of you know lockdown and everything now but i just it's a really warm pair of films they're they're really um as i say the word benign 
they're just they just really feel good and and that that can sometimes be used as a a, a derivative term but I, th- I think it's really what i needed right now well both films are centered around the brooklyn cigar company which is a corner convenience store which specializes in cigar cigars and tobacco and it's run by augie who's played by harvey keitel harvey keitel at his warmest and twinkliest it's amazing isn't it it's absolutely amazing um and surely that's why he did it because it's a it's the kind of part he never plays um the other thing about the cigarette store or the, the cigar store is that at the time that this came out and when i watched it in 96 you know it's cigar store now that feels like something from ancient history it feels like a real period piece and this you know and blue in the face and well actually smoke has has um william hurt say at the end that he's trying to cut down and blue in the face has jim jamush smoking his last cigarette and you kind of get the sense of it being on the cusp of something the whole idea that the 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 store is under threat anyway that it might close up and become a health food store you kind of go yeah you're on to there's something there's something liminal here that you know it's in the last days of that kind of uh smoking culture Mm. um and and so that kind of because it's about you know these people that are united by smoke and the hot air that they talk and whatever it feels like it's got um you know it has a very a very definite sense of space and and the place that it happens but as a result of changes in how we view smoking it has a very definite sense of time as well it's it's very much the focus of the neighborhood you have the the local characters who come by and just hang around and chat and Augie's quite happy to sit behind the counter and shoot the breeze with anyone who passes by and serve customers as and when. Yeah, it's it's um it's the locus, isn't it? I mean in in soap opera, the locus is often a pub. Hmm. Uh and and or it'll be, you know, somewhere that people meet. And the important thing is it's a mix of characters and a mix of classes and a mix of backgrounds all come to this shop. And it's it part of the fun of it is that kind of bumping off of people from different backgrounds and stuff um and and actually they they make a virtue of that in the opening scene where um paul william hurt's character the writer opens it with a a bit of history talking about how walter raleigh was able to weigh smoke to impress queen elizabeth uh, which is uh, which is lovely It it sets the whole tone of the film but there's something there's a really nice kind of juxtaposition between that ancient story in the court of Queen Elizabeth and this smoky little corner shop in uh, in Brooklyn, um, and obviously Raleigh has got tobacco from the from the uh, his trip to Virginia, so there's a link to America and stuff. But it kind of becomes almost like a national, almost national myth, national character stuff, um, and gives it a, a bit of resonance and a bit of depth. And I found that opening scene completely hooked me the first time i watched it and again watching it this week it was just like yeah i'm i'm totally with you on where this is going now i don't know where it's going but i'm totally with you well um as you say paul is a writer and uh we hear some background to him as well that he's written three or four books they've been moderately successful but he hasn't been hasn't published anything recently but he also has this backstory that 
um, his wife was killed in a bank robbery and she was pregnant and had, in fact, stopped by the cigar store that day. And Oggy feels a, a degree of guilt because if uh, he sort of chatted to her longer or kept her there a little longer for whatever reason, she wouldn't have got caught up in that and she'd be alive today. Yeah, that's a very Paul Oster thing, that kind of happenstance and chance. Um, I, The thing that really struck me watching it now, especially after sort of events last year in America was how casual they are about this shooting as if it's just something that happens mm. um that there's they live in this neighborhood where there's this constant threat of violence and there's gangs and there's everything else and they just they all rather just take it in their stride as just part of the furniture of where they live and that really struck me this time um and Paul the death of his wife is, uh, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche that, that, you know, his situation is defined by the death of this woman. It's, uh, you know, um, but it's clearly given him writer's block. And it's not the only Oster story in which a writer has lost their wife and is struggling to write things as a result, as if, as if I don't know whether it's amused, but, 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 but part of the trauma of loss is affecting their ability to create. Um, But what I think it does, for all it's a bit of a cliche, what it does is it opens Paul up because Paul and Augie are then able to basically share some kind of emotional relationship that I don't think they'd ordinarily ordinarily have. That that link between um, Paul's wife and, and and the store effectively grants license to them for these men to kind of express their feelings and i think that's an awful lot of what this film is about these men expressing their feelings in a way that still seems very unusual in cinema Hmm. um paul walking down the street is distracted by something or in a daydream and almost um hit by a truck but is grabbed at the last moment by a young black boy young black man um, and we get a caption on the screen, Paul. And that then clues us into the structure of the film where we're going to see segments each devoted to a particular character. Yeah. Again, and... again, him being saved by the character that we first know as Rashid is um, that's another chance encounter, a bit like with Paul's wife and the shop. It's the same kind of casual encounter that, that then has some significance um, because just as Oggy feels a kind of debt to Paul because of what happened, um, Paul now feels a debt to Rashid because his life has been saved. Uh, he offers um, Rashid a place to stay for the night, but Rashid is reluctant and declines, so, but Paul nevertheless leaves him his address. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, Oggy is planning to make a deal on uh, purchasing a batch of Monte Cristo cigars that he can then sell on to the um, the wealthy and powerful. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's just a it that all just feels very real, doesn't it? I I felt hmm. you get a real sense of him, you know, the the day to day job, his attempt to kind of make something of himself or to to get somewhere that there's a, you know, it's not like. It's not like he's planning something 
that feels outrageous or wild. It just feels very much yes, this is what this is what an ordinary person might do. Um and um but also but is also revealing of the kind of class mix and social mix that he exists within. So you just get this sense of a much bigger and more complicated world outside the store. Um, Paul arrives at the store just as Oggy is closing up and just wants to quickly buy a packet of cigarettes. But he notices that Oggy has a camera on the front counter. And then that leads us into a whole sort of exploration of Oggy's character, that he takes a picture every day and it's the same picture of the, of the front of the store from the opposite side of the crossroads. And he talks about that he isn't just a shopkeeper and that what people see is not necessarily what he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also, I found that, I mean, I, fo- I found that such a beguiling idea. And, you know, it's not, it's, there are precedents for this kind of stuff in, in art, um, you know, Warhol famously did his uh, screen prints of the same image that were all slightly different. You know, the cans of soup or Marilyn Monroe. But, you know, Monet painted the same haystacks or the front of Rouen Cathedral lots and lots of times in different light. So there's a kind of a, a artistic precedent for what Augie's doing. But it's really, it comes as a real surprise that he does it uh, because of who he is, as you say. And, you know, he's this guy that runs the shop. Um, and like his investment in the cigars, it suggests some ambition and, and, and a way of seeing things. But it, I really like that William Hurt doesn't get it to begin with and kind of has to be told to slow down and then take it. And then he spots his wife in it. And you have it's a really powerful moment, that real kind of connection. And again, that, that kind of um, the kind of emotions that we see the way that William Hurt breaks down and, and Harvey Cartel kind of comforts him. It's really subtle. I thought, I just thought it's really nicely underplayed and real and feels real and genuine. And as I say, something that you just don't often see in films and stuff. And it, it but it also is all about observation and just spotting things in ordinary life, which is, I think what this film is all about. The following morning, uh, Oggy, takes his picture, as he does every 8am, while Paul is busy writing in his tiny apartment, when the doorbell goes, and it's Rashid, who, yeah. uh, th- through bluster, saying, well, I, you know, I talked to my accountant, and he's recommended that I come and stay with you. So there's, there's bluster covering up for whatever other circumstances he's dealing with, and he's trying to pass it off as humour. Yeah, so and it's all... It, it's all storytelling, isn't it? So that they all they all weave these little stories, um, and yeah, and and all the kind of uh, the more casualties, the more you know there's stuff going on. Um, and William Hurt's character is always quite languid in this uh, film, but that kind of stillness all is all indicative of complexity under the surface. I think. Um, so, so yeah, it's just fun, isn't it? You just know there's more to it than meets the eye. Um, are you familiar with much else of Wayne Wang's work as director? I've seen a couple of things, not for a while. Um, was he the director of The Cooler? Was that him? 
I'd have to look that up. Um, no. <laughs> no, I didn't think so. Didn't oh, he made, did... made in Manhattan. Yeah, he did the Joylock Club, didn't he? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah, it's good. So it's, it's, uh, I, I must admit, I tend to think of this as a Paul Oster film because it seems to, it seems to fit so smoothly into the kinds of books he was writing at the time. Hmm. Um, yeah, but but yes, what what were you going to say about Wayne Wang? Well, it was more just to, because I, we hadn't actually mentioned his name yet, so I thought it was worth bringing up because one thinks of film as being typically director-led. Yeah. But I think, as you say, this is probably more writer-led, more like um, the way authored television is now. The director is there to serve the vision of the writer. Yeah, yeah. I... Uh, um, I... Well, I am a writer, so I, I bristle at the idea that the director should be the... I mean, films are collaborative, and, and my own experience of working on film is that there's no single person. You know, it, it's, yeah. a, it's a collaborative media. Yes, as, as I say, it, because of my familiarity with Oster's books, I think of it as, as his kind of creative vision. I would need to... It's interesting... I. It, it's terrible, isn't it? Sort of my prejudice for the writer, but uh, I would need to see more of Wang's work to kind of take that into consideration. They, they certainly talked about it in interviews as being very collaborative, and Oster was there on set, and you know, things. So, so I wonder, a bit like the Cohen brothers, I wonder how much you know, one credited director and one credited producer, but how much. It's it's a sort of joint effort. I, I don't mm. know. I don't know. Well, I think both films start with uh, the credit, a film by Wayne Wang and Paul Oster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so even if there, there is a divide between writer and director, it is uh, an acknowledgement that the finished work is a collaboration of the two disciplines rather than one taking precedence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Rashid is very impressed by... Paul's library at his home and, and he starts to read through Paul's own novel and um, we see a little bit of their life together as uh, as he stays in the in the flat with Paul sleeping in the study particularly this tiny little study uh, behind the only other room in the house in the in the flat and then after two days when Rashid is doing the washing up he smashes the plate which for Paul is the trigger to suggest that maybe it's time that he move on yeah, particularly yeah, so since he struggles to work in, you know, struggles to focus on his work when Rashid is there all the time. Yeah, and it it all seems rather casual, kind of. It's all it's all rather real. It all just feels, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be any artifice in any of this. Um, but importantly, we are, you know, they talk to each other. Rashid is reading the books that he wouldn't normally read. There's a kind of sense of um, there's a kind of sense that that it is of that this relationship is beneficial to both of them while it lasts as well. I, I feel that you kind of get the feeling that that already Paul is coming out of himself a bit as a result. Mm. He's being forced to interact with someone else because there's there's no way he can get away from him in this tiny it's, little flat. Yeah, exactly. Um, he offers Rashid some money or some clothes, perhaps, that he can take with him. But Rashid says, nope, not a penny, not a stitch. Um, and he t- does tell him that he liked his book and that he thinks he's a good writer. 
yeah but, yeah um, which is which is fun because i i you know that means a lot but it's also a source of awkwardness you know what do you say when people say they like your stuff but it, it's a kind of a there's a bond between them and they feel that you know they kind of you get the fact that as a result of him reading the book he kind of understands paul a bit as well um hmm. so it's all about a kind of they've knitted together a little in their time together and after he leaves paul he he sits and thinks quietly there's the camera holds on him for a a moment doesn't it yeah yeah it's just just processing through a lot of the film seems much more written rather than directed the camera is just pointing at things that are happening yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it, it's it's just putting the script on the screen. It's not uh, using particularly um, visual um, techniques in terms of the storytelling. It's rather like, you know, for, for want of a better person, want of a better comparison, Woody Allen, also very New York. His directing style is very plain and straightforward. He just points the camera at what's happening and mm-hmm. lets the writing do the heavy lifting and the and the acting. Yeah, I think it's. I think part of it is because we are invited just to observe what's happening. In right. the way that uh, you know, so so that there's not, it's not very fast cutting, as you say. We're often, you know, that's that's most uh, evident when Oggy tells his story at the end, and the camera just very slowly moves in on him. But we are just; it is just an act of observation, and we are participants in that. So I, I, I. Yes, I think it's a very conscious way of doing it. Um, that that that's uh, that that is, you know, a, 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 a conscious part of the the kind of story that this is, and the and ties into that nature of observe, observation that we've had already. Mm. The directing is referring is deferring to the writing, yeah, rather yeah. than trying to um, uh, bring a, a directorial style. It's saying no, bring the writing style onto the screen. And and also and just the do, naturalness. Do the work. Yes. Yes, and also the naturalness of it, the kind of the kind of everyday nature of it. So the mm. directing is not very, um, that you know, there's it's not very, very much in the way of flourishes. It's you you feel you key. could be in the room. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And you feel you could be in the room with them. And there's little in the way of music during the film. There's some. Um, diegetic music within scenes but there's very little score as i as i remember uh so the score certainly very little that jumped out yes there's that it's usually used in transitions so between scenes to mark the passing of time um so you'll get things like a train going across a viaduct and there'll be a bit of a piano flourish and stuff i actually think i actually think there's more music than you than you would initially be aware of. It's, the music's by uh, Rachel Portman, um, and I think oh, it's yeah. just—I think it's just right. It's—it's really—it's um, got that same kind of uh, gentle thoughtfulness of it. Um, you know, the, the typical way to do New York is to either do jazz or to do something brash and modern and whatever. And this this kind of avoids either of those cliches and has something. The the music it actually reminded me of. Um, is the score to Woodnell and I, with that kind of sad theme in the background, ah. that, that kind of Wurlitzer theme in the in the background of Woodnell and I, that same kind of um, 
slight slight melancholy to it i think right i mean at the um at the end of blue in the face there's a very long list of credits for all the music yeah yeah using the film and there are numerous musicians in the cast as well like lou reed and madonna yeah yeah um and yes that's a much more but then that's much more reflective of the kind of blue in the face is much more doing that kind of thing of here's a melting pot of music and different types of music and you know different different cues of history and art and whatever and it shows bits of old film and stuff um Mm. so i think that kind of hodgepodge nature is much more what blue in the face is anyway and smoke is is smoke is its own thing um blue in the face blue in the face perhaps feels more like it's wayne wang's film He's taking his starting points, perhaps from Oster's ideas, and then is it's a more of a. I mean, it's an actor-led film because it's so much of it's improvised, but it feels much more like a film rather than a literary work. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Smoke feels more literary. It feels yeah. like the work of an author rather than a scriptwriter. I think also, Smoke feels like drama. A fiction and blue in the face is full of things that feel real so you've got all the stuff where they've all the vox pops where they've gone out and interviewed people hmm. you've also got members of the public who you know are given facts and statistics to read out yes but also you've got a whole load of real new yorkers playing fictional versions of themselves or characters or commenting on real even the fictional scenes seem to be commenting on real bits and pieces. So there's a, you know, there's a the scene with a ghost that is all, you know, which I, I think is the bit that, that I really just kind of struggle with. Um, but even that is about a real person and a, you know, that's a real figure from history appearing in the film and stuff. So that the, it feels much more like a documentary um, even a drama documentary than than where a smoke feels like it this is this is a this is a story that we are telling a, mm. a, a, a a fictional drama that we are telling this this had a structure before they started filming and blue in the face had a structure created after they filmed yeah. it yeah yeah where they're putting together all the the, the bits shot on video and the the street interviews and the yeah, in exactly the, the way... And all the people reading off statistics. Yeah, in one exactly... Of, one, of, one of those people is also Michael Badaluco. Well, it's... it's Yeah, it's... it's. I mean, there's all sorts of very odd things in those cameos. Um, and very striking things in those cameos. Um, you know... Well, I thought I thought perhaps... I'd, I couldn't tell whether or not this was before he became a name as an actor. Or <laughs> if it was like a kind of bluff and... Or we'll have one moderately recognisable actor and the rest will all be just regular Brooklynites. Yeah, I've I've no idea. I've no idea. It's it's um Yeah, there's all sort there's all sorts of things and, and and you know, Michael J. Fox turning up in his shorts and stuff. Yeah, just lots of very odd things in it. But I I don't know. I don't I, without without talking to Austrian Lily, Wang, I don't know. Lily Tomlin is a, a homeless woman obsessed with Belgian waffles. For a, a role for which he was apparently nominated for an award, but she's playing a 
man, isn't she? She's got a beard and moustache, I think. I couldn't really tell. I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think so. <laughs> but then, but then we go off on a whole tangent explaining about the you know, the connection between Brooklyn and Belgian waffle culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah, is it, as important as baseball. It, I don't know. I don't. Yes, it's all. Uh, yes, it's it's. But then I think that that strikes me as the sort of stuff that comes up in documentaries. Having made documentaries, hmm. that's the kind of stuff where you go, "Oh, we've got this," and it all. We've got this thing that we weren't expecting and we can make something of it. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Well, we have the next chapter in the story headed Rashid. And Paul is working in his little office. There's a knock at the door. And it's a very angry African-American woman who's looking for her nephew, Thomas Jefferson Cole, who it turns out is Rashid. And she's demanding to know why Paul would invite him home and... Uh, assumes there is some kind of sinister intent. Yeah. Which Paul denies, naturally. And he had assumed that that Thomas or Rashid had gone back home to his parents, but actually he hasn't because his his parents have died some time ago, is that right? And he yes, now lives yeah, with his he, aunt? When he was when he was very young, yeah. So uh or his or his mother had died when he was very young. So yes. um, So what you what you get there is the story could take a really dark turn here um, with Paul accused of, you know, it could go in the, you know, if that, if that, if Rashid or Thomas turned up dead or something, then Paul's relationship suddenly, as you say, has this sinister thing going on. And can he prove that it's innocent? Would anyone believe him? It could be that kind of story, but it's not. And actually, he turns it round fairly quickly and sits the aunt down and chats to her and stuff mm. um i think i don't know did, does that feel convincing i think there's also an element of um kind of wish fulfillment in the idea of this writer who when he tells his fascinating top fact stories everyone sits around fascinated quietly listening to him expound on you know whatever it might be backed in and but backed in smoking his book or Raleigh weighing smoke or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, yes, this is not my experience as a as a writer. People tend to, you know, throw themselves into traffic rather than listen to you expound your great anecdotes. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so so it's all part of the kind of coziness of the of the story that that he can turn these things around so quickly. But. Um, but we do get a hint that there's something very serious going on, that that, that in this cosy world of whatever, there's, there's actual genuine danger. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, I think generally that works very well. It's mentioned that um, Thomas's father has been seen recently at a gas station outside the city, although um, the aunt says that as far as she's concerned, the son of a bitch is dead. Yeah. And then we cut to a country road with Rashid walking up to a gas station where a mechanic is working. Yeah. And he sits across the road eating his lunch and watches the mechanic working. Yeah, yeah. And And it's again again that nature of observation, that there's truth in observation. Um, And I think think all of that works really well because we are... 
we know what's ha- they don't really spell it out we can join the dots of what's going on we've no idea which way it's going to go or quite what he wants from his father um and forest Whitaker plays it with a level of with a level of menace that feels you know right Mm. And genuinely, you don't know where any of that's going to go. I, I thought that was really well, well done. Um, and and it, there's 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 loads of fun things like him using Paul's name, which just you know is 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 funny. I just think that's really funny when he introduced you know, uh, uh, and that that kind of web of lies he he weaves as he as he goes about. Um, yeah, I think I think all of that works very well. Um. The mechanics, Cyrus crosses the road and tells Rashid that he doesn't actually like being watched. Uh, and he can he can move along and, and he thinks he's casing the garage anyway for a robbery. Um, but he also has a false arm. Um, Rashid offers him the sketch he's drawn of him for $5 or suggests that uh, Cyrus could hire him. But Cyrus says, well, you know, you've, you've been sitting here for however many hours... How many customers have you seen? Yeah. And it's again that kind of a bit like all the stuff they've done about Thomas or Rashid being Paul's father. All that, all of those kind of um, that kind of silliness of it. It's that kind of that kind of silly fantasy of. Of, of yeah, yeah, you know, that, that, that kind of make believeness. Um, uh, we're just about to have uh, Ruby enter. Yes, yes, uh, and um, Ruby's a Ruby's a kind of wild card, isn't she? She kind of comes in left field and shakes everything up a bit, um, and it means that having introduced this idea that Augie is a sensitive, observant character it kind of blindsides him a bit that this ex-girlfriend of his turns up from years ago and tells him about a daughter that he didn't know he had. Um, I, yeah, I kind of, I, go, I don't know. I Do I buy that? I wonder if it would have helped if they had met periodically over the years, if he had a suspicion that he might have a daughter, something of that. So it's not quite a, it doesn't come completely out of the blue. I don't know. I don't know. I found, um, as I was writing notes, I, I kind of wrote question marks on it. Um, but I'm not sure what I would do to make that more. Um, it also feels, it's also the first thing. So Cyrus with his um, prosthetic arm, and it's a very basic prosthetic arm, you know, suggesting, again, that he doesn't have very much money and things. That all feels real her eye patch and her kind of wild demeanor doesn't it all feels like it's it's come out of a different movie maybe mm. um and i think you know that's good it, it shakes things up a bit but yes i'm i'm uh i guess my my kind of instinct would be to rein some of that in a bit um augie is fairly adamant that the daughter 
can't be his. This this eighteen or nineteen year old girl, um, whose name appropriately enough is Felicity. Um, who apparently has run away from home and is living in a squat um, with a crack-dealing boyfriend and is also pregnant. And it seems to be... You're right, it does feel like it's from a different film because it it feels like that she's playing poverty bingo. It's like cliched New York poverty bingo. If If it's fake and it's a shakedown, then that does fit in more with the tone of the film than it actually being real, I think. Yeah, I think I think there's also a um they're trying to show a kind of darker underbelly to the to the New York setup and stuff. And I it's just a bit too much of a sketch, I think. I think part of the problem with chopping and changing and telling lots of different people's stories, this just doesn't I don't know. I it just And a bit like Paul's the death of Paul's wife, these two women, the mother and the daughter, are really there. I think the dissatisfaction comes from the fact that it's not really their story. They're just there so that Augie has something to do. And I think that's why it feels, you know, if we had a bit of sense about the depth of them, you know, if, I don't know, if, if, if there was just a bit more to them, but as it is, it just feels a bit two-dimensional. I, th- I think that's my, my dissatisfaction with it. Um, Augie also mentions that uh, Ruby has suckered him before. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a case of once bitten, twice shy for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, al- we also hear a bit more of his background, that he's served four years in the US Navy in lieu of um, prison or college. Yeah. And... Um, I'm wondering what circumstances would give you a choice between the three. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they may be talking about the draft. That that was kind of what he's of that age. Oh, yes. Um, but uh, yes, you're right. You're right. It it does. It, it it there's that suggestion of a kind of uh, wild past, isn't there? Um, mm. um, he manages to brush her off, though, uh, with some difficulty and ruby leaves in tears and a, a customer awkwardly bursts in just as she's leaving as well yeah yeah and that that felt real yeah That's, yeah because i mean it's it's a shop someone's going to walk in eventually yeah and and it also plays on the thing that jimmy played by jared harris is supposed to have kept people out and i was thinking when we talked about um ryan's daughter we talked about uh uh John Mills's John. character in that, whose name I've forgotten. Um, Michael. Michael, yeah. Um, and how kind of exploitative, I think, is the word that... Or, or just the, the wrongness of that. It just feels very wrong. I actually think J- Jared Harris judges this really nicely. It's a, it, it, Jimmy's a really... Um, he's a character you, you really feel you know. Actually, I feel I know Jimmy more than I know Ruby or ruby's daughter i think i think there's a that there's more depth to him and a bit more sense of who he is and what he wants and stuff um yeah i think i think what it comes down to is the men are all ve- fair, pretty well served in this film and the women are not they're kind of there as accessories for the men which is mm. a shame it's a shame um and for all i like the fact that it's about 
men's relationships and and the kind of emotional side of men that you don't often see and 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 how they look out for each other and stuff and and it's not about although there's a although there are some fights in it it's not about that kind of aggressive side of uh you know it's it, it's not as if the only it, it's not that the only emotion they show is anger uh which is often the kind of uh cliche of films hmm. um but it's a shame that it, it can't also show that kind of depth and interest in the women i think is that something that's not reflected in foster's other work how does how do his female characters fare um off the top of my head they are they are generally because they're generally narrated by a man um timbuktu is narrated by a dog which is excellent um it's genuinely a shaggy dog's story it's a which is a magnificent conceit for a novel um yeah they're generally about and it's funny i i i suspect if i reread them i would find them more objectionable on that score now but at the time that i read them in the late 90s they seemed pretty um they seemed pretty good on rounded strong kind of dynamic women you know interesting women not just Mm. not just coat hangers um yeah and uh yeah yeah and now i wonder what i would find if i read them i i you know i think in blue in the face actually madonna manages to just suggest in that short cameo that there's a whole life going on there there's something interesting going on in that woman's life and you know the way that she turns up and does her song and then walks off and stuff you you kind of go yeah this is not the job i want to be doing but i'm pretty good at it and whatever and Mm. you just go i i yeah i don't know i don't know i don't know where i'm going with this point i think i just think in smoke that there's not enough for the women to do which is a shame Rashid is still watching uh, Cyrus as he works and Cyrus eventually offers him a job that's the uh, the the building in which the gas station's housed is in a bit of a state and there are rooms full of junk and old rubbish and he suggests that he can pay him five dollars an hour in return for clearing these rooms out and they haggle over whether or not um, he's going to be under contract or if it's going to be a freelance gig. Yeah, it's fun. And it's all part of the sort of gaming that Thomas is doing. It's also that kind of sense that his persistence, his quiet persistence, is successful. He he, he gets his way by through his determination and stuff. And there's something mm. rather... Um, yeah, I'd like to believe that, that if you just stick to your your thing, thing things will work out for you um, yeah. i'm not sure that's how life works really well depends on personal experience i suppose yeah 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 and rashid also introduces himself as you mentioned as paul benjamin yeah i should stop calling him rashid really and you know you know that's not going to last that it's always it's always you know that that that's going to not... catch up yeah yeah um so he starts working on the room and at one point he he takes a break while um, uh, Cyrus is smoking a cigar, of course, and drinking a can of Coke. And uh, Thomas asks him about his arm. Yeah. And Cyrus tells him a story. And again, it's, it goes back to storytelling, as you said. 
um, that God saw him as being a bad person, so he filled him with spirits and made him crash his car and killed a woman in the process and took his arm as a reminder. Yeah. And and so it was replaced with a hook. And that's, I think, why he has this very basic mechanical hook that it's it's a, a it's for him to remember what a kind of person he was and and that this is what the price was rather than a, a more realistic prosthetic it perhaps also serves as a way of keeping distance with other people yeah yeah it's 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 interesting because he all the stuff about how there's, there's a, the the sort of thing about that the, the use of god in that basically takes some responsibility off him um and yet what you can see in that story is, is his regret and his remorse. What I think this is then introducing is an idea about redemption and how do you, how do you make recompense and how do you live with the fact that you've, you've got something wrong, that you've fucked up, basically. That's, that's what this is mm. about. And that's going to be relevant to Thomas himself in what Thomas does because he's made the mistake. It's, it's kind of... Um, the sense of debt owed to people that, that that's how Paul and Thomas get together in the first place. It's Oggy's feeling of debt to, to Paul. So they're all in these kind of echoes running through the story. I, th- I think that's, um, yeah, I really like the way that's done. Um, Cyrus's wife and son arrive to pick him up at the end of the day's work and they play together. But um, Thomas says that he's going to stay behind to read. And we then see back in Paul's apartment that uh, Thomas has brought him a television, which we'd previously seen in um, one of the rooms in the gas station. Yeah. And again, it's a paying off of a debt, isn't it? That's a yeah. That's the thing. Um, and and he's specific. It's specifically a television on which to watch the baseball game. Yeah. Because baseball always comes back as this very important uh, spiritual leveler. In Brooklyn, yeah, it's it's also it's also that kind of idea of sport as the thing that men can emote about um, when they can't. So so that them watching the game together is a is a really important sign of their friendship, isn't it? It's, it's like yes. a real you know, um, and also it gives Paul a break from his work. So it's it's him chilling out a bit as well, which is the kind of a uh, part of the part of the thing and it and he he's brought something that he doesn't know that he was missing i Mm. think i think that you know uh, so it shows that thomas knows him as well um it's that connection to the to the world in general that where you get a sense maybe paul shut himself off from the world slightly aside from his visits to oggy's shop yeah um so the television is both a window onto the world and a way of connecting with other people through the through the shared experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's about to leave um, on business, as he says, but Paul calls him back and sits him down and, and tells him about his aunt coming to look for him, and gets him to talk about what his situation actually is. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that he had some days earlier witnessed a robbery, uh, narrowly avoided being shot. Um, and is now avoiding the creeper, who is a a local hoodlum who was responsible. Yeah, and again, there's that sense of violence on the streets that we don't really see. 
but it's kind of just part of the background of New York, um, which again, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure I really picked up on the first time I saw it, but now I find very troubling. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. And again, it's, there's that sense that Thomas is making light of things because there's this very serious thing that he's running away from. Um, so it's a kind of fear response. Mm. He's seeking out a parent who will look after him. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think in that way, the film maybe reflects how New York was at the time, you know, pre-Giuliani, pre-Broken Windows, pre uh, it being um, refurbished and buffed up into the uh, international tourism destination. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it just feels very striking now. Um, hmm. I mean, now Brooklyn, particularly Park Slope, where the the, the film is set, that's much more of a, a gentrified um, bohemian neighbourhood. Okay. A lot of podcasters there. Right, right. Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there goes the neighbourhood. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's also a sense where, when Thomas is talking to Paul, that there's that that speaking from two separate environments that you know they might live in the same borough but paul has his white neighborhood thomas has his black neighborhood and the two can coexist side by side but there's not any sort of interaction from one to the other yeah 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 and that's certainly something that has it, it's a concept that i think has become increasingly relevant now mm-hmm and we have the next chapter marker is about Ruby. She arrives in the shop. She arrives at the store and demands that um, Augie get into her car and takes her takes him to her daughter, even though he's still denying that it's anything to do with him. He does agree to go with her, and they get out in basically a horrible slum. I mean, not just you know the the working class projects, but you know, it looks like it should <laughs> either it's been on fire or it deserves to be. Yeah. As Oggy refers to it as a neighborhood of happy, prosperous people. Um and we meet Felicity, played by Ashley Judd, who yeah. I didn't realise was in the film. Mm-hmm. Um who is I mean, even with the mitigating circumstances of her living in terrible circumstances and in appalling poverty is still an awful person. Yeah, and it's 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 what a, a friend of mine used to refer to as broken glass acting. You know that kind of it's just nasty and and life is tough and and part of her, you know, part of her anger at her mum is sort of misdirected because it's about the horrible situation she's in. But it's it's really um, there's there's nothing good about it. And I said earlier about um, how. Paul is able to turn round Thomas's aunt very quickly. There's no hint of that here. It's just this is an awful situation, and and there's nothing Augie can do, or that, or that's the way it seems. Um, and again, it's that, yeah. There's there's it, it's a kind of a, a he's a he's a witness to it because he can't he can't be involved really. There's there's nothing. There's no way that he can put that right. No. Um. 
Felicity warns that her boyfriend Chico is going to be coming back shortly. And also, she mentions that she'd had an abortion only two days earlier. Yeah, so, yeah. It's all, yeah, it's all pretty grim, isn't it? Yeah. Um, meanwhile, Paul tells Thomas a story about a skier who was swallowed in an avalanche and died and whose son becomes a skier and many years later finds his father's body and he's been preserved in the snow and he looks exactly like him except the father now looks younger than the son does yeah and that's um that's a very oster kind of kind of thing going on i think that's in one of his books as well um but it leads to the they then go out to the bookshop don't they and they because it's uh, thomas's birthday that's right um and yes yeah, so paul buys him some books and um thomas asks out the clerk and um he sweet talks her and um the clerk is sort of a bit awkward about the relationship between uh paul and thomas uh, so thomas says well actually i'm his father yeah and it's it's you know and it's 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 playing on that thing about the the father is younger than the son from the story mm. it's again that kind of silly fantasy and you kind of you kind of have to make a um you kind of have to make a a, a conscious choice to go with it don't you that that's kind of what the the woman in the shop is is being required to required to do um and so she goes out on a date with them, doesn't she? Yeah. Goes out for a little birthday party and um, in a bar. And Paul dances with the clerk and Augie arrives with his girlfriend, Violet. And um, Augie reminisces about being 17 himself and says, oh, well, maybe you'll grow up to be a great man just like me. And it's sort of a nice sort of supportive environment. And Augie even um, offers a job to uh, Thomas working in the store, you know, clearing up and stacking shelves and that sort of thing and it's sort of things seem to be going in a much more positive direction he's developing these friendships he's uh getting you know some kind of support and and paul is developing as well you know he's after the birthday party and and seeing friends and yeah and yeah yeah also it all seems to be going in the right direction yeah you're right and i think then with also with Thomas joking about how he's Paul's father. Um, in a metaphorical sense, uh, that that seems fair because Paul's learning from him. He's learning about his environment and learning more about the world from this other person. Um, and there is a there is a much more uh, balanced relationship between the two, I think, than something as basic as. Paul taking him under his wing. I don't think. I don't think that's the case at all. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a there's a parity, isn't there? Um, yeah. Um, Paul tells the story about the the author using his manuscript for toilet paper. Yeah, backed in. Yeah, yeah. Famous story. Yeah. I'd never heard that. Uh, not toilet paper. Cigarette papers. He smokes. Oh, his cigarette book. paper. Yeah. So he smokes his book, um, and uh, you know, which ties into the themes of the film and stuff but it's also that that idea that could you do it as a writer could you smoke your own book um yeah it's a, it's a sort of philosophical thing as well as mm. as everything else well i don't smoke but 
Yeah, it depends how long the Andrex lasts. But but also, you think you're going to die, so you know because it's it, it's during the was it in the siege of Stalingrad or something yeah. like that? Yeah, Le- uh, Leningrad. Leningrad. Sorry, yes. Um, um, and so so you know what what matters in those in your last moments? That's kind of the idea, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> Having clean underwear. Yeah. <laughs> they they find a. a package or something in the shop oh they find a package in the bar um that ah i remember now no so so they paul, te- paul tells paul the story fi- reaches up to get a book and as a result of him reaching up to get a book finds the bag of money yes the money that it turns out thomas had picked up from outside the robbery where it had been dropped and it's almost six thousand dollars yeah and he's so his story about what happened turns out not to be true again again he's been lying or, or dodging around the facts of, of what really happened hmm. um, while in the store he's mopping the floors while Oggy goes out and he leaves the bucket rinsing in the sink but angled in such a way as it overflows onto some boxes nearby which are the boxes containing the very expensive Monte Cristo cigars. Yeah, yeah. And and so he's ruined Augie's dreams and his plan and stuff. But also it, it's that Augie has been... It's almost as if Augie has been punished for helping Thomas. There's that, there's that kind of thing of he, he's the last person who deserves this. What I think is interesting is then you get Paul interceding and getting them to meet over a table and stuff while they try and sort this out and again it's that idea of what can you do when things have when you've got something wrong you have to you have to own it you have to kind of face up to it and i i think that's a really um you know another film might have held that off until later so that it's you know what happens at the end of the film but this is just like no you you deal with it straight away um i think that's really interesting oggy is obviously very angry that he's lost that much money but He's also concerned about the damage to his his credibility. Yeah, that um, that loss of face that I can imagine is important in such a close knit environment. And he he seems less concerned about the money. Yeah. Um, so Rashid just hands over the bag of money, um, but Augie won't accept it. Yeah, except he does when it comes down to it. He does take the money. Um, I also love the thing of Paul saying, you know, you've got to say something nice to each other and they both swear at each other. I think that's really funny in that it also underlines the fact that things are going to be okay. They're not going to be fine, but they're going to be okay. Um, I just th- I just think that works really well. And it's it's not about... It's not about Oggy's anger, which would be the way, you know, he doesn't smash the place up. He d- they don't have a fight. They just have a kind of, you know, they deal with it. And uh, I, I think that's really, uh, yeah, I, I really like that. Um, there's a knocking on Paul's door very late. And he answers it. And unfortunately, it's the creeper and his hench hood. Yep. Um, looking for the money and pushes the gun in his face. And Rashid sees, uh, Thomas sees it through the window. And runs away. And, and runs away. And you, and because of what we know about him, we don't know how he's going to respond. To, you know, is he just going to run away and leave Paul to it? And then we see, we cut to Paul turning up at the store in a sling and stuff. 
Um, and he rather casually says, yeah, if somebody hadn't called the police. So you kind of get that, that sense that that's what Thomas has done. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, you, it, it's that kind of intrusion of the, of the violence into this cosy world is, is really shocking. Mm. Because Paul has shown himself to be nothing if not benign. Yeah. And uh, supportive of others. I, I also really like the idea that he, as he says to Augie, you know, for once I was able to keep my mouth shut. I find that quite funny. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a, again, there's a sense that the, the, the sort of the casualness of his bravery in that moment um, is uh, is very nicely done. Mm. Um, Rashid, uh, Thomas has apparently left town. Um, and we see Paul busily working away and watching the baseball in his spare time, whilst Oggy meets Ruby to talk about what's happened. And um, she says that she needs she needs the money. She needs about five thousand dollars. Unfortunately, I can't read my writing of where I say what it's for. For a re- reward? Isn't she go? I, I isn't she t- planning to take her daughter away and just get away? Yes, I think so. Um, Augie, yeah, Augie says that his boat came in and he gives her the $5,000. And he asks her point blank if Felicity is actually his. And Ruby says that she doesn't know. Yeah. Well, it's just showing what a good person he is, isn't it? And, you know, there's no... That he gives the money anyway. And it's all about what it says about him. And... um because that's what she's for in the story, I think. It's yes, it's it's money he can afford to lose. Um, but it, uh, even just on the possibility that she is his daughter, he thinks it's he thinks that this is the right thing to do. The yeah, or, the right or, course of action, or, or that it doesn't matter whether she is or isn't. You know, it's it's just he's still going to help. I think that's the that's the kind of essence of it. Well, also, it's not going to do his credibility any harm if he's worried about having it rebuilt. Yeah. The next chapter is Cyrus, and it starts in um, Paul's apartment where the phone rings, and there's nobody in. <laughs> and that's that's the whole scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, the phone rings in the shop, and it seems there's no one, and eventually someone answers. Uh, Augie answers the phone and he says, oh, blow me down, the rabbit's alive. Yeah, yeah. Um, Thomas is painting the outside of the gas station where Cyrus and his family invite him to come along for a picnic just as Augie and Paul arrive in a car. And do they claim they're doing research for, for relating to medical bills? But it's a, it's also, that, you know, Augie's immediate thing is, yes, come and have a look at my, you know, have a look at my tyres and have a look at the car. They, he imme- immediately kind of makes a connection with Cyrus and just, you know, talks to him on his terms. Um, but yeah, it, it's all, um, uh, yeah, again, they, they kind of come at it with the, the, this kind of fantasy story. And then, and then Thomas is trying to cover. But it's Paul who says, you know, we should just tell the story, just tell it truth. And, and, and Augie backs him up. He's just like, you know, it's time it all came out. Um, leading Thomas to admit who he is. And Cyrus thinks at first that he's mocking him and he's furious. 
but Oggy sort of intervenes, which leads Cyrus's wife to start kicking Oggy. Yeah, yeah. And and which pushes him into pull and it turns into this like flailing arms and legs. Yeah, it's fast, isn't it? But but that fast is all about undercutting the cliche of Cyrus losing his temper and being angry and stuff, which is you know, that that would be the the cliche. And then we cut from that fast to that awkward picnic, which I think is really nicely done. It's really uh you know, and Cyrus doesn't Cyrus and, and Thomas stare at one another, but Cyrus offers Paul a better cigar than the one he'd normally have. And uh, that seems to be the, you know, the healing moment. Mm. You know, nothing is... For a story that you, you, you were talking about how literary it is, and a lot of it is very talky, actually all of the important beats of that scene are the, the things that are not said. You're right. It's It's much more of a filmic scene than the rest of the movie, I think, because it's... It's action rather than dialogue. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but it's all about what we know about those characters. So what we see, we can read because we know who all of these people are. Hmm. And that brings us to the, the final chapter of the story, yeah. which is Oggy himself. Now, so the, um, the story he tells was a short story that Paul Oster published in a newspaper on Christmas Day. And that became the inspiration for the film. And it plays out pretty much exactly as it is in that Christmas story. What I love about it, I think, I may be wrong, but I think that the original idea was that as Oggy told the story, it would show some of the black and white bits of the events happening. But actually the power of it all is that you have Harvey Keitel sat in a cafe and the camera very slowly just moves in on him as he tells the story. And it's, it's just him telling a story. And it's great. It's a, it's, a, it's a really good bit of direction of just going, just keep this really, really simple and straightforward. And we're just, we're just, I just think it's great. It's a really good, and I love all the ironies of it, that he steals from this old lady, that she knows that he's lying to her, that it's all about, you know, all of these deceptions and things. Um, but I just think it's great. I just think it's a really nice um, story, and it obviously it turns smoke into a Christmas movie. Um, <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm very particular about what I regard as Christmas movies. Well, so. yeah, I'm aware. So uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, Paul comes to the shop and says that he's only buying one pack, and that he's actually trying to cut down on cigarettes. Yes, yeah, someone is worried about my health, he says. And that's really nicely underplayed. I would also point out that just before that, the chat in the shop is about how there's going to be another war. And they mention Saddam Hussein. Uh, I think right at the beginning of the film, it's mentioned that the film's set in 1990. Oh, right. OK. So this, is the, this would be the lead up to uh, Desert Storm. Right. OK. No, I just thought, well, oh, that's a bit of a... Uh, what's the word? prescience but yes okay mm. okay um paul mentions that he's been commissioned by the new york times to write a christmas story and he's only got four days so he's been asking around but oggy says well i've got a christmas story and also there's a news story in the background that oh some gangsters have been shot in a heist oh well that's a happy ending yes <laughs> oh they're dead hooray yeah nice bit of festive cheer yeah so um paul and oggy Tired to a nearby cafe, and Oggy tells his story of where he got his camera from. 
And he says that he was working in a store, in, in, in the store, and there was a shoplifter who he chased down the street, and the shoplifter dropped their wallet, which he hung on to, having, you know, feeling sorry for the shoplifter just taking cheap knickknacks. And he looked at the pictures in the wallet and, and put off sending it for a long time until Christmas, when he followed the address to return it and arrived in the, the projects, rang, rings the doorbell, and eventually an old lady answers, who he realises is blind. And whether or not um, she really believes it or if she's just wants to believe it, she thinks that Augie is her nephew. Well, he says, he says it made her happy to pretend. So as far as he's concerned, of course she knows that Harvey Keitel is not her grandson. But they, they both go along with it because it's Christmas and because otherwise they'd be alone. Um, and I think that's really important. It's the, will, it's, the, it's the conscious decision to go along with the lie. It's telling yourself a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Augie comes in and he tells her about what he's been doing and making the whole thing up out of whole cloth. And as I say, he makes her very happy. and He goes out and buys the bits for a, an impromptu Christmas dinner and they have a nice meal. And afterwards they're having a sit down and he excuses himself to go to the bathroom where he finds boxes and boxes of cameras all piled up and he says that he'd never taken a photograph in his life but he has an urge to take one of these cameras when he goes back to the living room the old lady is asleep so he does the dishes without waking her leaves the wallet behind takes one of the cameras and goes and the following year he went back to the same flat but it turned out the old lady had died. Yeah. So she spent her last Christmas with Augie. Yeah, yeah. And so Paul, as far as Paul's concerned, what Augie's done is this great virtuous thing. A good, th- a good deed. And Augie is going, but I stole from her, I lied to her, whatever. So you have a, all of those nice little ironies of it. And, and what's great about that is that, is that it, as I say, that story was published on its own in the, in the, New, York, in the New Yorker, uh, whenever it was. Um and stands on its own but coming at the end of the film it kind of ties all of the things that have been going on in the film together the idea of the good lie the idea of the connections between people the idea that strangers can kind of choose to uh connect to one another um all of that all of that i think just i just think it's, it's beautiful and then and then what we get is is having uh so um paul's assessment of it is that it's bullshit which is funny you know and he's, he's quite spellbound by it but he says bullshit and then he says to tell a great story you have to know how to push all the right buttons so that he kind of acknowledges the storytelling ability of it mm. um uh, and then what we get is a um basically the closing theme uh with um with basically the story being retold to us, but now we see it, we see it play out. Um, and what's, what's great about that is there's no, you know, words other than the song, um, but it fits with what we've been told. So it kind of it just cements the idea of the story as a real event, I think. Mm. Well, um, Augie also says just before the credits start, if you can't share secrets with your friends, what kind of friend are you? Yeah. So he he's he's putting weight behind it. For him this is a 
like a quite profound experience and he's it seems like he's a bit upset that paul would dismiss it so quickly yeah 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 i think yes i think um i don't know yeah it, but it's all it's all full of that kind of uh, the the irony the kind of doubt of what's real and what's not real and stuff um and the idea of it the idea of it being a, a good story is the most important part of it i think mm. um yeah yeah and I, I i find that all utterly bewitching i just i just think it's so it's such a brave choice just to hang on harvey Keitel read it, telling that story and um yeah it's it's just captivating i just I, I absolutely love it absolutely love it what did you make of it uh the ending or the film as a whole but but well both um well i i like the film i didn't I don't think I connected with it as instantly as you did. Um, and I think because uh, uh, maybe the themes didn't jump out at me as the, the way they did have for other people, I found it relatively lightweight and more of a, a, a mosaic rather than interconnected. But I did enjoy it. And I thought it, the performances were superb. I thought Hi- Harvey Keitel was excellent. Mm-hmm. But um, because of the way the film is... Uh, divided into separate chapters it felt more that they are um, a mosaic and sketches of this environment with the cigar store and Oggy as the centre rather than being a web with rather than, yeah everything emanating outwards rather than being connected around sure if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm using hand gestures, listener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a kind of radial plot rather than a a yes. linear plot, yeah, yeah. Well, it, well it's sort of uh, interconnected with, with um, outer circles as well that, yeah, that yeah. Uh, connect across. Yeah, yeah. I think I think um, I once heard it described as pulp fiction, but without the violence, which I think is quite a good description of the structure. Um, I would prefer this to pulp fiction. Yeah, I think it's also, um, and there's bits of it. As I've said, there's bits of it that I find difficult. I also, I mean, more so of Blue in the Face, um, but I find, you know, seeing Harvey Weinstein's name on the credits makes a whole load of things kind of pop out, like the fact that Myra Savino's in it, in Blue in the Face. Yeah. Um, And I think the character of Violet, uh, who is, you know, she has a very small role in in smoke but there's more of her in blue in the face um and she's played by mel gorham who 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 really you know she's a really sort of dynamic part of blue in the face she's really really good and you really feel for her and she's really fun um but there's a whole load of stuff that makes me you know all of the all of the kind of rela- the, the roles of women in the film suddenly i i find myself kind of going yeah you know Hmm. it's it's uneasy yeah 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 and there's a scene where she's in front of the mirror talking to herself where she's talking about how she's going to win over Oggy and she takes her dress off and it is that kind of thing of of going is that her is that what you would do if you were improvising a role or is that an imposition is that is that something that it has been suggested by so I find all of that just very uncomfortable in, yeah. in uh, just because of what we now know and, and stuff um, 
And there's, it is, as I said before, Blue in the Face is very self-indulgent. I think it gets away with it. The thing, the thing that kind of bothers me about it more than anything is how much scenes just cut. You know, they've just they've just cropped the best bits from a scene, and you you just kind of feel maybe things could have been, maybe there was a more elegant way to edit it or to cut away or to stuff. But there's an awful lot of transitions in the same scene. Um, that uh, yes, whether whether were well, they cutting out you know, bits of the improv that didn't work yeah yeah and you know that that that's kind of the nature of it that you just want the best bits but i just mm. there's a bit of me that feels that that there's a more elegant way to do that i think um well i i can understand it existing in business terms as well because it effectively gives harvey weinstein two movies for the price of one yeah 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 um have you seen the other anchorman film the one that's made up of all the deleted scenes and subplots they didn't use in the first film. No, but I have seen the Inspector Clouseau film that's like that. The one where um, Clouseau... Oh, tra- Trail of the Pink Panther. Yeah, where Clouseau is played by uh, Roger Moore. That's Curse of the Pink Panther. Well, th- th- there's the one... Th- yes, but there's the one... Because th- uh, they made... Tra- tra- t- they made tra- t- Trail of the Pink Panther is the one with lots of unused material. Curse of the Pink Panther has no Peter Sellers material in it at all. And it's about a, another detective looking for the missing clues. That's right. Okay, yeah, no, I muddled them up. But they, yes, they, I, they, I were shot, they were shot simultaneously and they're both dreadful. Yeah, yeah, that's, what, that's, that's the important point. They, they are, yeah, they are. Um, and, and in spectacular poor taste as well. Um, yes, I believe Lynn Frederick sued. And uh, David Niven is dying in it yeah. and looks really, really unwell. And, and yeah. his voice was dubbed by Rich Little, I believe. It's just, yeah, it's just awful. I mean, awful. Ro- Roger Moore as Clouseau is the one saving grace because it's Roger Moore mid-Bond making a complete fool of himself. And I think he's very funny. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, uh, and, and extraordinary. Of all the people to play Peter Sellers, that's, that's the strangest piece of casting. Um, if, if Clouseau had plastic surgery and or, and to look like anybody of course he'd want to look like roger moore i suppose i suppose yeah yeah um but yeah so so i think um yeah i think i think blue in the face i think blue in the face is is really interesting but it's interesting in comparison to smoke i wonder i'm not sure how well it stands up on its own it feels very uh it's very... like a dvd extra yeah and uh, uh, yes if, or, or if, uh, if... If the viewer has enjoyed Smoke, as they should, they will probably find Blue in the Face interesting. But I don't think you could watch Blue in the Face on its own because there's there's no sort of grounding on what this environment is. That I mean, Augie and Violet are, I think, the only characters who overlap. Uh, no, there's a few. Oh, um, oh no, some of the regulars in the the store as well. Yeah, and um, uh, 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 Vinny, who owns the store as well. Oh yes. Uh, and yeah, it, but but it's noticeable that that um, William Hurt isn't in it, um, and I wonder, you know, it's it's strange that he doesn't have a cameo in it. Um, I think also, I, I think my main thing is that is that Blue in the Fa- Blue in the Face is a much better film than it ought to be, given what it is. Um, but and and all the self indulgences I think play out pretty much. It's much more enjoyable than than um, the, the kind of vanity project that it really 
that it really is. I really, and I think part of that hangs on the fact that they find interesting things for the various characters to do. Mm. Um, and some of it's very funny. Some of it's rather profound. I really like the idea of, I think that Jim Jarmusch thing of wanting to have his last cigarette with uh, his last smoke with Harvey Cattell, it just works really nicely. I think, I think that, that feels profound. It speaks to all the things about a changing time that, that smoking culture is changing. Um, and I really like, I, I, you know, I think um, it's, it's quite funny having Michael J. Fox and Madonna and RuPaul and whoever else turn up at this little corner, sh- corner store. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's kind of fun using the archive footage and the Vox Pops and stuff. It feels like it's got something to say, but, but yeah, I think, um, as you say, I think it feels like it's a companion piece. It, it, I've got the DVD where both films are together, but I noticed that that's quite hard to come by now. They are sold as separate films now. Um, and I, f- I find that quite an odd... They, they seem such a companion piece that, I've, I've, as you say, I find it very difficult to see how you would respond to it on its own. Um, how to Get Ahead in Advertising, featured previously on this podcast, listener, is not available on its on its own in the UK. You can only get it in the, I think, now out of print, um, with Null and I Blu-ray. Okay. And it's included as a special feature. Wow. Um, that's the logical way, I would say, of releasing Blue in the Face. You put it on as the, the second disc of a deluxe release of Smoke. It, yeah, I yeah. Don't, I, it, it, I think it struggles to justify its existence as a standalone film. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I mean, entertaining though it is. If people will buy it, I guess. Uh, uh, There's also odd things though that the posters for the film. Yes, I noticed that they 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 really play up the legs of the female actors, and the the poster for Blue in the Face has Mira Sorvino in it, who's in it for less than five minutes. Yeah, yeah, and and they they're they're also it's Harvey Cartel as the lead, but with a beard, suggesting that all of that was done later. Yes. yeah, it, they're not they're not in any way representative of what the films are. Um, it's no, all, it's all very you know. I I suspect the uh, it's Weinstein salesmanship again. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So it, it's interesting. It's you know, and all of that, as I say, just just I don't know quite how to articulate it, but but just there's something rather uncomfortable about all of that, mm. um, just because of the what has come to light since, but. Um, and it's a shame because I think I think they're really interesting. I think I think they're exactly the sort of thing that you could show people learning to write or learning to put together films about. You know, here's how you can do something relatively low budget, relatively self-contained, relatively um, relatively tight in terms of in terms of constraint on. Uh, the the place and the, the locations and all of that, it, it, uh, you know, a, a real and all of those kind of practical, manageable things, and yet you can create something that's quite different and interesting and surprising and and um, and warm as well. I think I think the the tendency with low budget stuff is to make them very violent or uh, dark or ponderous. Um, and this, th- there's a lightness of touch about these that I really like. Thanks to Simon for making time for this recording. 
His audio novel, Doctor Who, Scourge of the Cybermen, is published in July and can be ordered now from bigfinish.com. Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast, with over 90 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, bullshit is a real art. listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Mm-hmm.